0: But, with all of that said, welcome again to our church, glad, glad you all are here, especially if it's your first Sunday. We are in a series right now in the book of Zechariah, if you want to turn there in your phones or your Bibles, it's the second to last book of the Old Testament, so right before Malachi, two books before Matthew, so if you know the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's pretty much right before those books, kind of the latter two-thirds of your Bible. Um, So, go ahead and turn there. Uh, Today, uh, in the second sermon of the series, we are going to be looking at the angel of the Lord, this figure who's a very important figure in the Old Testament, and really all of the scriptures, but especially Zechariah here today will be our focus. Uh, But to catch you guys up to speed, Zechariah is one of the Old Testament, the final Old Testament prophets. Uh, Again, second to last book of the Old Testament, written around 520 B.C. to Israel, or specifically that tribe of Israel called Judah. Uh, Which, uh, by the way, that's the reason why they're called the Jews as well. They're people of Judah, so that's why they're called the Jews later in their history, in Old Testament history. But the people of Judah, returning from Babylonian captivity uh, around 520 BC, they they were exiled from God's presence, exiled from this good and and holy and pure and provisional land, which imaged salvation that God gave them uh, centuries prior in biblical history, but they had been exiled for 70 years. Uh, due to their sin, their idolatry, their self-deification. Uh, it's one of the things that God was promising uh, in, in this juncture, at this juncture of Old Testament history, is that if uh, Israel would not keep God's laws, if they would go their own way, if they would worship themselves and, and, uh, and fail uh, to, um, to, to worship Him, and if they, would, if they were to harm others and themselves, that uh, part of the consequence for that would be exile from the land, which was symbolic of exile to, of God's presence. So think about that. If you're new to the Old Testament or just the Bible in general, when God gives land like this, it's all hinging on this early story in the Bible when God exiled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, which is where God was. And so th- this idea of geography and, and where God is especially located in, in land, and exile from that land is symbolic of hu- the human race being exiled from God's presence. So that's what you have on, kind of on this repeat cycle throughout the Old Testament is you have this cycle of Israel, who was is a microcosm of the human race, being exiled from God's presence over and over and over again. And, and at the end of the Old Testament, it's kind of this final straw of sorts, this final version of that, where they're kind of fully, in, in this very decisive manner, exiled for a very long time, 70 years. But, but God stays graciously committed to them, strangely. It, it's this big kind of plastered question mark across the pages of the latter parts of the Old Testament where God is not based on their moral goodness, bringing them back. Not based on the fact that they cleaned themselves up in exile. Not based on the fact that they all of a sudden did keep God's laws. They didn't. God inexplicably calls them back and shows them grace. And so it's in connection with that event that Zechariah is prophesying. The the return of exiles to the land of God's presence that Zechariah is saying, return to God, return to the land of, of plenty, the land of provision, the land of protection, the land that God gave to your forefathers, which was symbolic of salvation itself, kind of a mini Eden, calling people back to that. But as you're doing that physically, the message is, return to God. As you're physically returning to this land of promise, to Canaan, to this figurative Eden, return to God spiritually. Repent, believe, cast yourself upon his care for you, and you will be saved afresh. So that is a, actually a great synopsis of the, the role and the purpose of the prophets is to speak in physical terms about spiritual realities. So as they're physically returning, he's, the, the lesson essentially, God through Zechariah the prophet is return to God. Come back, even in spite of, even now. One of the other prophets says, even now. I love that plea. I think it's in Amos. Even now, return to the Lord. Even now, in spite of your sin. Even now. At the at the end of this cyclical, you know, constant being repelled from God type drama, uh, that's filled history that that there's no seemingly no escape from. Even now, return to God, who will show you patience and grace. That's the message of Zechariah, in a nutshell. Already it is uh, for us, as we saw last week, and that's going to continue to be uh, the the message for us, as it's pointed ahead to Jesus Christ, who is the final version of that callback. And so. So that's, that's the message. Je- Zechariah is saying, return, come back, and with one eye in the future, Jesus is that ultimate way. That's why he calls himself the way. Jesus says, I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a guy. I'm not just a good person. I'm actually God in flesh who's making a way back. Uh, for sinners, not, not for great people, but, but for sinners. So if it helps, think of prophecy, uh, which is a very difficult genre of the Bible to read. Uh, just in general because of the types of language it uses. It's very symbolic and apocalyptic. Think of prophecy like a multi-layered onion, if that helps, that, that slowly is peeled back to reveal the center of what God's trying to actually say. And so some of Zechariah's prophecy is then fulfilled before, kind of apart from Christ, in reference to physical realities like geographical returns, like we were talking about, and temple rebuildings and things like that. But it's also at the exact same time a hint of a better version of those realities, of those fulfillments, of those initial fulfillments. So sometimes the language and it's used kind of goes through the initial fulfillment to Jesus, but Jesus is always the goal. Or think uh, if this helps too, think of it like a father who promises a horse to his son when he turns sixteen, but before his son turns sixteen, the automobile is invented, the car is invented, so he gives him a car instead. Was the initial promise of the horse invalidated? No, it's just that he gave him a better present. He gave him a better version of that present. Uh, it's, It's the same kind of present, but a present with greater glory wrapped around it. One of the great examples of this in the Old Testament in the prophets is the temple. When the prophets talk about a physical temple being rebuilt in Israel, they're talking about that physically, but when they talk, if you really read them, they're talking about a greater type of temple, a, great, a temple with greater glory, a temple that the physical temple, when it was rebuilt in Israel, before it was later destroyed again in AD 70, so there's that issue as well, uh, but when, before it was rebuilt, uh, it, it talks about it in, with different dimensions and a greater glory and a place for all nations, and uh, it's a version of a temple that far surpassed what was being rebuilt physically, and that's why Jesus, when he comes into the scene, he talks about himself as that temple. He talks about the church as that temple. So the prophets are kind of speaking through the initial physical fulfillment, which is partial and good, to the, the better fulfillment, which is Jesus and New Testament church realities, which is great. So it's not either or, it's both and, but always with the end game being Christ. And that's why it's relevant to us. This is about us, it's not just about ethnic Israel. Read about the temple being rebuilt. We're not waiting still for a physical temple to be rebuilt in Israel today. That's not the hope of the prophets. The hope is that we are the temple. The hope is that Christ was a better one. The hope is that we get we get access to God now. That when we gather as the church, we are actually in a very real sense the true temple of God. Right now this is happening. Not this building. The people of God who are in this room. That, that God dwells among us. There's no more separation. He's truly called us back to himself so that we're not pilgrimaging somewhere to be with him. We're being with him by faith in Christ who died for our sins and brings us back to himself. So so with that said, a, a little bit of a, a, a teaching point on prophecy if it's new to you or as a reminder, a little bit of a recap on what Zechariah is doing. So this is his second vision. Zechariah 1, 7 to 21 is his second vision which happens months after the one we looked at last week. So if you, if you see the date in this first slide, you'll see it's months later that Zechariah gets this vision, he sees something that God gives him, and it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, it's about Israel's return, but it's better. It's about the church, ultimately. It's about Jesus, ultimately. It's about saying, this is how God's going to bring you back. And so we'll see that today, and Peter hinted at that uh, before the last song, too, which is great. But we'll, we'll see it uh, even, even more clearly here in a second. So with that said, let's read uh, Zechariah 1, 7 through 21 which is the rest of the first chapter. All right, so Zechariah 1, 7 21. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, "'I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. "'He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, "'and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses.'" Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you Have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little while, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem." And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah. To scatter it. All right. So clear as mud, right? Uh, let's let's uh, summarize. So the first thing I want to do is just walk through this and uh, summarize and explain the vision, just to clarify this a bit. The main characters and players in this. Uh, the passage explains part of it itself, and other parts of the scriptures will kind of help further explain. And, uh, and then we'll come to these latter pieces uh, in terms of asking the question: What does this mean here after after that? So. To summarize and clarify the vision, these are basically the main characters in the vision. So we have Zechariah, of course, who's receiving the vision, uh, and and he's, uh, to be clear here, he has seen this uh, quite clearly. He's very lucid. So when we we talk about the prophets seeing these, kind of, I joked last week, they're kind of trippy, because they are, uh, but when when they're seeing these visions, they're very lucid. These are very ordered visions. They're not dreaming. Uh, They're not hallucinating. Uh, They're very ordered. They're awake and they're enabled, enabled, these prophets are, to see these things that God wants them to see. Now, the visions themselves are almost inexplicable sometimes, or seemingly so, or difficult to understand, but but the prophets themselves are awake. They're very lucid. They're very ordered in how they're seeing these things. So Zechariah just sees this. Second, we have an unnamed angel. Now, it's unclear here whether there are two angels or one. I think there are two. They could easily argue that there are just one. I think there's an angel, a general one, that's talking to Zechariah. And then there's an angel of the Lord, who I'll talk about here in a little bit. So there's, uh, I think, an unnamed angel who talks with him. Uh, then there's mention of Zion, uh, which is the hill that Jerusalem was built on, uh, but also kind of an apocalyptic image of this future heavenly Jerusalem uh, that looks ahead to the church and to Christ. Uh, but Zion here is synonymous, really, with Jerusalem and and myrtle trees as well. So. Uh, they all represent the people of God in, in general. A myrtle tree was a shrub that was common in Israel, and so consequently, culturally, Israel even became known as the myrtle sometimes, or just myrtle. And so it'd be similar to, uh, you know, those of us in the room uh, who are Americans. I guess that's all of us, so I don't know why I said it that way. But um, a, a vision of an eagle, you know, with streaks of red, white, and blue behind it or something. You know, we might instantly, in stars, you might think of America. When we see that image, uh, it's kind of the same with myrtle trees. Uh, so it's a national image of sorts, but basically you have an image that's synonymous with Israel and Zion, uh, Jerusalem and Zion, but it's one that uh, also represents symbolically uh, Israel. So fourth, we have uh, the, the horsemen uh, who are, uh, it appears, angelic beings who, of some sort who patrol the earth and report that the nations are at rest, but Israel is at unrest. So that the passage kind of explains this for us a bit when Zechariah says, who are these? And like, it's at that point where sometimes you're in Zechariah and, and you're like, thank you for giving us the answer, you know. It's like, that, tell us who these people are and what this image means. This is one of the places they do. They at least say that these are angelic beings of some sort that go out, patrol the earth. And this is their report. The nations are at ease, but Israel is still at unrest. There's still some unresolved tension and enmity between them and the nations and them and God. And so that's why we have colors like red and, uh, red and white. And red sometimes in the Bible symbolizes war and white sometimes peace. And so it might be that the colors are, are themselves indicating that there's still some things to resolve between Israel and the nations and Israel, the people of God, and God himself. Uh, peace is still coming in a, in a much greater way. Then we have this most important, a couple of most important characters here. The angel of the Lord, who is a, a special being distinct from the unnamed angel in the vision, who stands among the myrtle trees Israel and makes a plea to the Lord to show mercy to Judah and Jerusalem to truly return them to the land and restore them to end exile fully so picture this, this special angel called the angel of the Lord who's in a special way standing before the Lord of hosts hosts means armies essentially so think the god of, of angelic armies or the god of earthly armies as well uh, especially earthly uh, heavenly armies Uh, but standing before the lord saying how long will will you show no mercy it's a bit of an intercessory type prayer how long will you show no mercy how long will it be until you fully bring people back and end this angst and separation from uh from the people and so you have him and then the lord of hosts again who's responding to the angel of the lord's plea with gracious and comforting words promising mercy to jerusalem And terror, destruction, and unrest to come to Jerusalem's enemies, and the enemies are the horns in this latter vision. A lot of of times in the Bible, horns indicate uh, other evil or enemies of Israel, nations, or the devil himself. In the Book of Revelation, he's imaged, and his beasts, his kind of lackeys, are imaged as um, horned, like creatures uh, that, uh, when they're described apocalyptically, like Zechariah's, kind of a prophetic and apocalyptic imagery, like imagery laden. Uh, book And so the horns are nations, or at least this depiction of evil uh, that we see, like in Daniel and Revelation again, uh, but they here uh, depict these uh, antagonists, these enemies uh, that are further going to be destroyed and brought terror to by God. So I want to go back then. This is, this is basically what's going on in the vision, but what really helps to clarify further is, is to define uh, and look further into this one character, the angel of the Lord. Who is he? The angel of the Lord, biblically, and right here we see it too, but I'm going to widen out to define this, uh, is not just an angel or even a named angel like Michael or Gabriel, but rather, this is the definite article, the angel, the angel of the Lord who a lot of times in the Bible, identifies as God himself. Like in Exodus 3, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In other words, I am God. The angel of the Lord is God. He identifies as him. Yet at the same time, he's also distinct from God. Like in passages like Samuel 24, 2 Samuel 24, 16, and in today's passage, verse 12 of chapter 1, he's an angelic being who is distinct from God because he talks to him and, and, and God to, to this angel. So he identifies as God, yet he's separate at the same time. He is like this premier messenger type. Angels are messenger types a lot in the Bible. He's this premier messenger type. He has this special role. Uh, to kind of represent God and actually be God in a greater way than other angel types do. Even Michael and Gabriel, who are these named archangel types, on the same level as Satan, as a fallen angel type. Uh, This angel of the Lord is actually higher than than all of them. So like God, but but different. And so because of that definition, that in terms of what the Bible shows us and tells us about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, this has led many to believe, and, and I'm talking about throughout Throughout history, whether they're pastor types or academic types or cross-denominationally and with different strands and branches of the faith throughout history, right up until today, led many to believe that this angel, this angel of the Lord is what we call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, which which fits because the angel of the Lord is God, yet not. And we would say in in Trinitarian terms, we talk about the God of the Bible being a Trinity, not a Unitarian God, but a Trinitarian God. He is God, yet he's not. He's not the Father. The Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit are all God, and yet they're not each other at the same time. So, uh, so it appears that this angel of the Lord is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. So he is God, yet he's distinct from the Father at the same time. Another place you see this is in Joshua 5. Love this passage. This is a little bit later on after the Moses incident with the burning bush. When Joshua, it says, was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. This is when uh, Israel is is seeking to take back the land that um, was overrun by other nations when they were in Egypt for 400 years. They're entering this, this promised land. They're conquesting it. They're overtaking it with God's help. So when he's by Jericho, they see this man, he's standing there with a drawn sword in his hand, and picking up in that second verse, Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And I love this answer. He answered, no. (laughs) It's like, it wasn't a yes or a no, but he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Josh, look at this though, and Joshua fell on his face He fell on his face to the earth, and he worshiped. And he said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So this individual, the angel of the Lord, is captain of the host, captain of this angelic army of God. Yet he's distinct from God. Yet, he's worshiped as well. This is extremely key to see this. Because a lot of times in the Bible, when an actual angel is worshiped, what do the angels say? You mustn't do that. I'm a created being like you are. I'm not God. Get up. Don't worship me. This is sin. But this angel does not. You see? He's not an angel. He must be God, and yet at the same time, not God at the same time, or God the Father. He must be God the Son. So this one doesn't, but he accepts the worship. And so with this in mind, then, if we basically, so what that second section was is just, just to equate the angel of the Lord with Jesus Christ ahead of time. And then we ask this question, how does that, or how does this, help us understand the obscurity of the vision and tie it to the gospel? How does that help clarify? How does that blow at the haze and the fog? What's Zechariah seeing? What is the angel of the Lord doing here? If the angel of the Lord is in fact a Christophany, and it is. What is Zechariah seeing in this vision? In short, he's seeing a picture of Jesus ahead of time, interceding for sinners. Then he's seeing God the Father responding graciously and mercifully to them, then promising destruction to their enemies. There's Zechariah 1:7 to 21 in a nutshell. You can just tune out now after that, but that's pretty much it, right? It's a picture of Jesus ahead of time interceding for sinners, in this case Israel, who represent sinners of all time. God the Father responding graciously and promising destruction, uh, further destruction to their enemies. It's textbook prophecy, you guys. Textbook prophecy. Because it's all about Jesus. All prophecies about him. All all the promises of God find their yes in Christ, Second Corinthians one says. And the exact nature of his work is in focus too. It's what I love about this is you're seeing Jesus ahead of time, but you're also seeing what his role and job is. That is to intercess, to intercede, to come between, to mediate, to save, to make pleas before God the Father. To make right two parties that are at enmity between each other. Which is the whole problem of the scriptures. What's the problem in the Bible? Go back to the very beginning. People were exiled from God. People were at war with him. People weren't where he was. See, there's a problem of distance. Physically and spiritually. That's the whole, that's the whole point. And so to see this angel of the Lord basically doing this, pleading to God, intercessing, and asking, how long, O Lord, will you show no mercy? Uh, it is an anticipation. It is a, an instance of the gospel, an instance of Christ ahead of time, and explaining what he's going to do when he actually comes into the world. Where it's no longer a Christophany, it is the actual birth of, of God's Son into the world, when he became human well, uh, later on. So it's a very important theme to understand in in relation to other parts of the Old Testament and to Jesus ultimately. A lot of you guys might be new to the Bible, so we'll explain this for a little bit. This is um, exciting and very very important to understand this and to be equipped with this way of thinking. When you think about what happened on the cross, when you hear teachings that are consistent with this but also contradict it, uh, we need to know as Christians where the New Testament authors get their theology about Christ and where they get their theology about what happened uh, on on the cross. And, And the fact is, on multiple occasions, not just here, but multiple occasions in the Old Testament, there are priestly or kingly or patriarchal or angelic figures who intercede before God for people and whose prayers turn away God's wrath. So, think of people like Abraham in Genesis 18, Moses in Exodus 32, the Passover lamb in Exodus 13, Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 or 19, I think it is, uh, and the angel of the Lord here in Zechariah 1, and there are more. The, these mediatorial figures who intercede on behalf of people before God and whose prayers turn his wrath and judgment away. Common theme it's repeated. It's not this blip on the radar, it's a cyclical thing to show us something about God's plan of redemption. And so what Jesus does then when he comes on the scene is he fulfills this idea. I'm not sure what happened there. I'll leave that to you, uh, Alex, yep, and Peter. When Jesus comes on the scene, uh, he fulfills this, so that this pattern then of three things God's anger against sin and evil, which is a good thing, by the way. God would not be good if he wasn't angry at evil. He wouldn't be good. God's anger at evil, but then we have God's intercession for sinners. The problem problem arises when we realize that we're a part of the problem. We're the part of the evil in the world. So God's intercession for sinners, or these figures intercession for sinners, and then God's mercy. So anger, intercession, mercy. Anger, intercession, mercy. Anger, intercession intercession, because of that intercession, mercy. And we see the same thing here in, in the book of, of Zechariah. So it's a pattern that's actually not just revisited in Jesus, but is, is actual death uh, is, as well. Um, and so when we look at Christ in the Gospels, it, he we, we see a man, a God-man, who, who fulfills these prophecies in this way. He is, we, we would say, and, and the scriptures teach this, that That he's the true priest. He's the second Moses. He's like Hezekiah, and that he's the true king of Israel and the world. The Bible says he's like the true Passover lamb, who deters wrath. He's he's like the true angel of the Lord here as well, like the true Abraham when Genesis eighteen pleads to God to save people from Sodom and Gomorrah. He's he's like the ultimate patriarch. We saw that in the back in the book of Genesis. He's all of these things. They're about him. They point to him. He's the true patriarch, the true king, the true priest the true sacrifice, the true Passover lamb. All these are foreshadowings of him. And so because of that then, he's not just those things in their roles, but he's those things in what they do. And that is they intercess, they intercede, they come between. They somehow fix this problem between a holy God and undeserving, unrighteous, sinful people like us. This is actually one of the reasons why it's it's so important to know the Old Testament. And, and this is actually, some of you guys might be aware, of, but this is a doctrine, this idea of, of God um, sending his son so that his son might solve the problem of his wrath or deter his wrath away from sinners. It's a doctrine that's always been challenged in the church, always. Uh, you look back in church history, it's been challenged, and up to today, maybe even more so in some capacities. Um challenged more today uh, by people who are uncomfortable with that idea um, even though the Bible is very clear that it's it's a it's theologically factually true uh, people that are uncomfortable with the idea of uh, God being wrathful in general uh, but the idea that his son took a beating for us but this right here is actually to respond to that this is one of the reasons why it's so important to know the Old Testament and to be equipped as Christians to answer these types of criticisms and To respond to you know it could be pastors it could be just your friends it could be Christian artists that are changing their theology, changing what the idea of what happened on the cross away from wrath and blood, and substitution, uh, to some other weaker, less glorious and less loving doctrine, less saving for sure. And the reason why we can get it from here, and the reason why it's so important to know the Old Testament, I'll just ask this question. How do we know that one of the things Jesus is doing on the cross is interceding for us and deterring God's wrath? Well, the answer is because Abraham did it, because Moses did it, because the Passover lamb did it, because Hezekiah did it, because the angel of the Lord did it, all in the Old Testament. And and these are prophecies. These people and objects are foreshadowings and types of Christ who fulfills them. Especially as you look at the Passover lamb who died that we might live. I mean, it's, this isn't like something we have to guess at. Jesus is called the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, if he did anything, it was to deter God's wrath and allow it to pass over people who were deserving of it. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So how do we know that he came to do this? We don't just look at the New Testament. We look at the old. This is a pattern that, that long predated the incarnation long predated the first Christmas long predated that glorious first Christmas when God became man it was something that he came to fulfill not just to imagine 2000 years ago in Bethlehem but rather to fulfill and so then when we get to the New Testament then we're not surprised to read when we look at what happened on the cross we're trying to explicate to understand the gospel we're not surprised to see Jesus on the cross say things like, Father, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he's bearing wrath. He's bearing separation from God so that we don't have to fear separation from him. Classic substitution. We're not surprised to see this because of what Zechariah 1 has to say. We're not surprised to see this because of the idea of the Passover lamb. Because of Abraham and Moses' and Hezekiah's ministries and what they the substance of those ministries, or that he was crucified in the first place, which is a horrific way to die. It's not surprising because sin is that bad. You know what? Jesus is called a sacrifice to God in Ephesians 5 here, a sacrifice, which at the core, this is what sacrifice did in the Old Testament. It came between God's just demand for evil to be punished and people whom he loved. That's a sacrifice mediated, it came between. So even just to call Jesus a sacrifice alone is to say that he was a wrath bearer, a judgment bearer for us. Or a little more clearly even in 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but this is what love is, he says, but that he loved us. How? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitious means favorable. So to say that he was a propitiation means that that he was a favor-making sacrifice. That implies we were not favorable to God before. But because of his sacrifice, we are now favorable to him. We can access him. He can come fully to us and walk with us in the cool of the day in the garden like he did with Adam and Eve before sin came into the world in Genesis 2 and 3. Right? John 3.36 can't get more clear. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Reverse engineer that for a second. We all have the wrath of God in us. We're born into that. That's the problem. Wrath of God because of sin. What's the remedy? Alone is it Christ. There's no other way, right? And, and the glorious good news is believe on Christ. Obey the fact that he says, I'm the son of God and I came to rescue you. That's his ultimate command. The command of God is eternal life, it says later in John. That's the command of God, eternal life. Believe that you have it. See, we, all of us have the wrath of God upon us for sin, but God's love trumps that wrath through his son, but he's the only way. If we don't believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on us. So it's a call to believe in the gospel, and the wrath of God will pass over. It will lift. That intercessory work of Christ will fix that issue and problem and bring us home. See, it's a, it's a better heightened kind of intercession here. This is something that Jesus actually surpasses, that the Old Testament types and prefigurements don't really go this far, except the Passover lamb kind of does. Uh, but the other ones don't, and that is, it's not just Jesus's plea when he intercedes for us. He's the expression of God's plea of love for sinners to Himself, so that He takes the brunt. God takes the brunt for us. God the Father and God the Son, together, and God the Holy Spirit. His intercession is His death. So we think about Jesus interceding. It's not Jesus praying. Alone, it's actually his death that becomes that intercessory work. We need it. It's the only way. Because Jesus was God, he's not another being who's being forced to die. Jesus is not having his arm twisted here into doing this because he's God. If he was just a man, you could say that. This is not divine child abuse. This is Jesus willingly going to the cross to die for sinners and to willingly take the wrath of God upon himself so that the love of God could come in like a flood and overcome us, overwhelm us, and lavish itself upon us so that we can be saved. See, so because Jesus was God, he's not another being being forced to die, nor is God an angry lunatic that Jesus is twisting the arm of so that God's saying, okay, I give up, I'll show mercy. We can't say that because God's the one who himself is dying, who himself is suffering, like a, a father who's losing his one and only son. That's what God the Father went for you because he loved you so much. He suffered like a father or a mother, a parent, who's losing their one and only child for you. He's not having his arm twisted here. It's not that kind of intercession. He himself is interceding. Because he's a trinity, he can do this. A Unitarian God could not do this. Because he's Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the Son can come and intercede uh, between sinners and the Father and reconcile them to himself. It's amazing. It's, it's not and all because he loved us. This is not a transaction here. We say that a lot, but I want to make sure you guys are hearing this. This is important theology. This is what the gospel is. But it's not a transaction. This is not a You know, oh, yeah, that's right. God's not obligated here. his, His arm's not being twisted. He wants to do this for us. This is why in 1 John 4 it says, in this is love. All the stuff we're talking about here right now, propitiation, wrath deterrence, the Bible says, in all of that is the love of God. That's how God shows us his love. We can't separate love and that. Biblically, I guess we can in our mind, but we'd be wrong to definitionally theologically biblically those two things are inextricable god shows his love for this and that he sent his son he sent himself really to die in our place and to take his just wrath as a human being who is also god so he substitutes himself for it it's it's amazing Uh, that's the gospel so to take this a step further then if, if um If Israel here, then going back to Zechariah 1, if Israel here in Zechariah, the myrtle trees, is truly a forerunning picture or microcosm of the church ahead of time, then other aspects of Zechariah 1's imagery are true for us now as well in Christ. So three things. First of all, if this is all true, then prophetically, really, truly, We are the ones that Jesus stands among. We are the true myrtle trees because we are true Israel, the true people of God, us in this room who believe. We are the ones Jesus stands among and advocates for. Did you know that Jesus advocates for you even when you're sinning? Do you know that God the Son goes to bat for you even when you're sinning? He prays for you, intercedes for you. He always stands between you and God. He's like the angel of the Lord in this uh, prophetic vision. It's not a transaction. God is, and we'll see this later in Zechariah too. if you know the story of Joshua the high priest, how that occurs, that whole vision We see it play out there even more. The advocating work of the love of God. This is what who Christ is. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Zechariah 1 imagery. This is happening now. This is written to the church. Church, do you know? This is why it's such good news. You know, we are, second here, we are the ones who God speaks gracious and merciful words to. We are the ones who are shown mercy and grace. In Christ, he speaks that way to us, like he did in the vision in Zechariah 1.13. Even though we have sinned against him, God, through Christ's death, speaks grace to you today. And what are the words? He says in the next verse, this is the important uh, thing to mark. If you like to take little notes in your Bible, mark this. When... When the angel saying this, when Zechariah is seeing this, he intercedes. God says, I have gracious and merciful words to say to you. What are the words? The next verse tells us. Verse 14, he says, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly jealous. This is the good kind of jealousy, by the way. Jealousy can be a sin. This is not jealous of. God is not jealous of you. He is jealous for you. See the important difference? There has to be a good kind of jealousy because is God a sinner? Jealousy is called sin elsewhere in the Bible, but God is jealous and God is not sinful, so there must be a good kind of jealous. God has jealous love for you. This is, uh, again, one of those almost unfathomable things if you think about the gospel, you guys. Um, this is the good and gracious word. In spite of their sin, this is God's posture. Though they're exiled and though they're sinners, right? This is what God thinks. He not only loves them, not only brings them home, he's exceedingly jealous for their protection. This is, what he, this is how he thinks of you guys and me today. He's jealous for us. That's the kind of love he, he's, he cares. You know, when, when he sees sin flirting with us, he, you know, he, he's not like a deadbeat husband that, that doesn't care in that moment when other men are flirting with his wife. He's not passive. He's, he's not passive. He loves you guys. He's exceedingly jealous. For, he's, he's that much in love with us. Isn't that amazing? This is gospel stuff. Where does he show us the jealous love? On the cross, when he vanquishes evil once and forever. Where he rips the head off of Satan. Where he stares death in the face and says, Away, forever. Away from my bride. Never again will you touch her. See how much he fights? How much he goes to war? That's what he's like to you and me today, right now. Isn't this just incredible? Do you think that? Do you believe it? I shouldn't assume you do. Do you believe it? Believe it. Work hard at applying that belief by faith to the heart. God is jealous for me. And like Israel, that word is spoken to them in their sin. In their exile, and they're coming back in waves, but they're still kind of in functional exile with shitting, the city in shambles and the whole wall being broken down and the temple. And it's image in that in that prophecy. We are the ones that God is, is jealous for. And so do, do you see here how um, what I love about this whole idea and this It helps when you're in prophecy because it's just so, again, trippy and beautiful and prophetic. But um, do you see how incredibly dynamic and impossible to box in and straight up beautiful God is? He's perfectly angry at all the evil in the world, and yet at the exact same time, he's exceedingly jealous with love for sinners. You got to put both those in your theological pipe and smoke it. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're too one-sided, and I am too. Perfectly angry at all the evil in the world, and yet exceedingly jealous in love for sinners like us. And he's patient and gracious, and because he's a trinity, not a singular being, he's able to himself advocate for us. He's able to himself be the solution to his own just wrath against sin. Mind-blowing. But the perfect fulfillment to Zechariah 1, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Perfect fulfillment. Where we are brought back to God, where he advocated for us, where he showed his jealous love for his people, where he, as it says here in Zechariah 1, chose us again. Where the horns of death and sin and Satan were destroyed, where he put them to open terror for us, where he promised comfort forever to those who took refuge in him. What does Psalm 2 say? Take refuge in the Son, the Son, the second David, the ultimate David, who in and of itself is a prophecy looking ahead, written a thousand years before Jesus, but about him, as the New Testament says, take refuge in the Son, the inter- seeding work of our, of our Savior. And so this is what Zechariah saw 500 years before it happened, 500 plus years. Zechariah is getting this in a very lucid state, this vision, which he can't fully put meaning towards. We can. You know, there's hope for Zechariah in Israel. Zechariah spoke this to Israel. There's a lot of hope there. But it was foggy. It was hazy. It wasn't clear. There's, there's no dots connected. They could put their hope in it, but, but on this side of the cross, we have all the clarity in the universe. This is what Zechariah saw. He saw the angel of the Lord advocating for sinners, which was fulfilled there. Zechariah 1's a prophecy about him. Zechariah 1's a prophecy not just about him, but about that, that event our Passover lamb. It's our only hope, you guys. Uh, It's it's the gospel beforehand, uh, to use Paul's words in Galatians 3 about Genesis 12. The gospel beforehand is all over the Old Testament. Classic textbook prophecy here. But this is a stern warning as well, um, in love. You know, if if God's Son showed this kind of kindness and, and love and intercession, Where else are we going to go to be saved? Where else are we going to go? So it's a warning. Don't go anywhere else. Don't believe in another Savior. Don't stop believing in the gospel of grace. Receive this good news today. But it's also, it's a comfort for the soul. (laughs) This is why I think at the very end, when he talks about, God talks about, I'm going to prosper my city again. I'm going to bring comfort once again to the city of Jerusalem. In, in Galatians 4 in the New Testament, we are likened as people to the New Jerusalem. We are the true city of Zion now, with Christ in us as we gather. So what is that saying prophetically? He wants you to, be com- to have comfort spiritually. He wants to comfort your soul. And part of what, he, what God is doing for us then in this is he's saying, Be, be at peace, mothers, fathers, laborers. Christians of all shapes and sizes and maturity levels, people from all nations, be at peace, be at peace. I love you. I've advocated for you myself before myself. My love has saved you from my wrath. My love has saved you from my wrath. My love has saved you from my wrath. I've died for you. That's the extent of my love to die in that manner on that, on that cross 2,000 years ago. Believe, 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 believe. It's the only way to be saved. And, and, then, and then hear the plea. Take a lot of comfort in this, uh, you guys. It's, um, wherever you're at spiritually, I want to implore you to believe the gospel today. If you're not saved, believe the gospel and you'll be saved. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and you'll be saved. If you're a Christian, believe the gospel Believe it hard, right in the heart. Apply it to faith, by faith to the heart, and uh, you'll be saved afresh. Uh, this is the kind of love God had. It went to hell and back. It went to death and back. It went to suffering and back uh, for you. And uh, it's, it's the only way to be saved from the wrath. As John 3 says, believe in the Son, and wrath will be abated. It will be lifted from you. But if you don't, um, it will remain on top of you for that last day when you'll be judged and it will overtake you. Let me pray. Father, thank you, God, for this passage that is uh, quite clear, uh, quite comforting, but also quite stern and quite um, just serious and visual and real about the gospel, just how um, much you have righteous anger against sin. Problem is, uh, part of that evil in the world, we love to see evil overcome when it's not inside of us, but the problem is it's inside of us. Uh, We need a God to become human, to advocate for us, to stand among us, like the angel of the Lord amidst the myrtle trees and the vision, and to advocate to God for us. And his advocacy was his death. His advocacy was his perfect life. His advocacy was his propitiation on that cross, making us favorable to God. God, forgive us our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the blood of Jesus, we approach you. Help us to worship and thanks today that Zechariah saw the gospel in his second vision 520 years before Christ. Amazing. That uh, was always your plan. This is always your plan for it to happen and for it to be sufficient. The only imperative in this passage is to basically believe the vision. You know what you're doing, God. You know what we need, and that's it. Help us to rest in that and forgive us for seeking to add to it. In Christ's name, amen.